Welcome, welcome to our first episode of the Success Series. I'm your host, David Berg, and I'm here with my guest, Alex Nimroff. Alex has a pretty interesting story, some experience in the biomedical field, previous law. Um, I'll let him explain a little bit more about what his career looked like and his path to getting there. Uh, but without further ado, Alex, stage is yours. Uh, thanks, David. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, as David said, I started as a lawyer. I started a biotech company to um, to treat a rare disease that my son suffers from. And I've been in the uh, the biotech space for nine, year, nine years now. Awesome. And uh, how did how did law come about? How did that you know, I think like many lawyers I hear these days, kind of grew up without anything that I was really passionate about, or at least that I was aware of at the time, so I decided to go to law school. And after practicing for a number of years, um, I realized it wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. I left to sort of enter the business world, and um, and I thought that was going to be where I sat for uh, forever. And then my son was born suffering from this terrible disease, and immediately it kind of thrust my entire life, my family's life, my career, and everything else into a whole different place. Wow. And um, jumping paths like that, I mean, they're not related, but it's not like you were a basketball player and now you're a baseball player, the Michael Jordan route, but you completely went into a different space. Was there any prior knowledge or experience or study you had in the medical field prior to prior to pursuing that? None. Zero. Okay. So how you, did you, how do you have faith that you could succeed in that field and ultimately do what you did but you know I I didn't you know when I look back and I think about you know how this all happened and how this was all successful um you know I think it was like this healthy combination of fear you know a really strong desire because you know for any parent who has a sick child you'll do anything you can to help that child um so I think it was a combination of those two but you know I I learned also in retrospect that that kind of just gets you only to the first step of this, which is creating the company, you know, setting out on this, this, you know, journey to go do this thing. But then all the challenges set in. And for me, um, without some sort of spiritual foundation, um, it, that would have been impossible. There's so many challenges. You know, it's kind of like I've learned in studying spirituality. It's one thing to learn the concepts. You know, that's not that hard. Sure. It's actually a whole different thing to start to apply them. Um, and so, you know, that's what I really attribute all of this success to. Would you say, like, spirituality gave you a whole different lens into, like, your own life and your own world? Is that, like, the benefit of, like, studying Kabbalah and spirituality? Yeah, yeah you know, I think you start, when you start studying spirituality, at least for me, you start to learn, obviously, a lot about yourself, you know, and you sort of track all of your steps and the choices you made up until certain points in your life. And, um, you know, so... When we started going down this biotech path, which of course was something you know we had no idea how to do, um, we were faced with a million challenges in just getting you know a drug discovered and developed. Which yeah, I mean, it's just statistically speaking, the probability of success is like sub one percent. Um, but then on top of that, you're dealing with a very sick child and all the emotional and psychological you know just challenges that that brings up. Sure. Um, and then this is a shifting career. So it's sort of, you know, it's all of that. You're giving up everything else that you knew. Um, understanding about yourself, it helps. It's the first step. But without the tools to navigate, you know, through the things that come up, um, it's impossible. You get crushed. And I saw that very early on. Right. And so we'll touch on spirituality later. Clearly, it's a big part of your life. And I'm, I'm sure viewers would want to hear a bit about that. But just on a tangible you know, literal perspective, a lot of our users and viewers are younger. 
and they they're afraid of jumping into a new career, let alone completely, you know, shifting after many, many years. So on a, on a, you know, 1% just literal level, what was it, was it, a, was it a crazy thought that you just said, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Or was there like a belief internally that it's for sure going to work because you put all your desire and heart into it. And there's no other scenario that it doesn't, it doesn't work in the bio field. Um, you know, I think, huh, it's a really good question. It's a very good question. <laughs> There was a point in time when I remember making a decision to sort of completely pivot to do this. And I, I, I remember at the time having complete certainty that this was going to work out. Um, you know, what I've learned, to, the concept of certainty has, has been a full evolution for me. And I can tell you that, you know, I, I started, I got connected to Kabbalah when I was 16 years old. Um, I was introduced to it by a friend I went to a Kabbalah, like an introduction to Kabbalah course, and there was something there, but I was 16. So this was in New York, Miami? This was in Miami. Miami. Okay. My priorities were on things like girls, socializing, you know, friends, sports, and it was not studying spirituality. But there must have been some seeds. So then fast forward to law school in Chicago, um, I passed a Kabbalah center and went in and, you know, connected and took, again... Kabbalah 1, first course, introduction course, and Kabbalah 2, something there. Again, years went by, so I moved away from it again. But I, I feel like there was some seed that was planted. And sure. then when, you know, my son was born and started down this kind of, you know, this, this biotech path, um, I felt like the, the challenges were just so overwhelming, um, you know, from every angle. And so I felt the need to connect to something you know, whether it was spirituality or some level of consciousness or therapy, there was just something drawing me. And a friend at the time said, I want to introduce you to um, one of the New York teachers, David Guillaume. And so he connected me to David. And David's first, you know, first request of me was to listen to Kabbalah 1, 2, and 3 again, the one that, that he taught. Um, and immediately it spoke to me because these were concepts that I think were completely universal. And of course, they made sense. But hearing them at different stages of my life, they had completely different meaning. At that point in time, um, it was exactly what I needed to hear to deal with a lot of these new complex challenges. So from that point going forward, um, that became the foundation. And it, I mean, I have zero doubt in my mind that this all would have failed miserably without, you know, some form of spirituality. And for me, certainly that right. form is Kabbalah. Right. And were you religious by nature prior to coming and study Kabbalah? Or was that... Did you grow up religious? I did not grow up religious. Okay. I had religious friends, um, so I was around it a lot. But no, I, no one heard because I think a lot of our listeners and there's a you know a known misconception of Kabbalah that it's a religious belief or that you have to be Jewish or there's right. But again, I, I like you said, I don't think there needs to be any correlation to that. I mean, you can come from any faith. You can be an atheist for all we care, right? I mean, there's no. Um, did you feel like when you came into it was that a fear? Was that a was that what you were told prior to studying initially with, with David? I probably felt that when I was younger, before I stepped foot in and heard, you know, the first words out of, you know, my teacher's mouth of, and it was just universal. Like it had nothing to do, at least in terms of those introductory courses. It just, it wasn't premised on, you need to come from a certain background at all. And, you know, since then, there's been plenty of people who, you know, have been a part of my journey and my path and my experience and they've connected 
to this? And no, I mean, many of them are not Jewish, let alone sure. religious. So Alex, I think, you know, we spoke a bunch about Kabbalah and your own personal life and your profession, but I think our listeners not only be inspired, but be interested in hearing a little bit more about your past and your career, you know, specific drugs you worked on, the condition of your son, and just really anything along those lines that, because clearly it was a, you know, a roller coaster journey. And if you could just take us through that a bit. Yeah. So, um, so I went to law school. Um, I thought that was going to be my path. I, I sort of quickly realized that it wasn't what I wanted to do, despite being certain, you know, that it probably was. And, um, and left practicing to go into the business world. My son was born and started having seizures within hours of birth. Wow. And we, you know, we looked for, um, we got a diagnosis and it basically was this very sort of rare condition that no one had ever studied. Um, and so we searched around the world for, for some people who knew more about it. Um, the prognosis from his, his neurologist was, it's gonna be very poor, but we don't know that much about it. That's what I distinctly remember her saying. So to me, I thought, okay, we can probably learn a little bit about it. Maybe there's something we could do about it. Um, so, you know, searched around the world, found um, a scientist who had done some early work on, on this. It's a genetic mutation in a, a sodium channel, which is a gene in the brain that we all use, you know, hundreds of thousands of times. Completely like random. Completely random, spontaneous mutation. Um, and so, um, you know, so met him and... and talked about what could we do to better study this. So we started modeling my son's mutation in some different model systems, stem cell models, you know, uh, rodent models. And we started to see um, certain characteristics and it opened up potentially a path to this very, um, you know, new treatment approach, which is an RNA therapy. It's not um, not exactly gene therapy, but it's similar. Um, rodent models and, um, you know, and, and we discovered a characteristic that, you know, of, of this mutation that sort of lended itself to potentially a new treatment approach, um, a new drug, because there was, of course, nothing for uh, for him and these other kids that we later learned. Uh, How many kids were born with this every year? So we don't know exactly, um, but, you know, we were estimating a couple of thousand in wow. the U.S. And yeah, it's uh, it's ultra rare. And um, I think you guys could follow that could like, uh, like give you guys data about who be born with that or it's just it's like random, random. yeah wow. so you know we all have these spontaneous mutations that are just not in significant genes and this one is in a very critical gene in the brain um and so we you know so the thought was okay maybe there's a path to develop a drug but you know developing drugs require you know tens of millions of dollars um tremendous expertise companies and things like that um so you know I, I was committed to helping him, and um, so was this scientist, and met another parent who sort of shared this perspective, and we thought, okay, um, how could we move this thing forward? At first, we thought a nonprofit route would make sense because we knew nothing about drug development, um, but quickly realized that we needed to make this a commercially viable option, raise money, and that would be the only seat, the only way we'd be able to have a seat at the table and actually, you know, move this um, move this forward in any sort of meaningful way. So. You know, we went out and we were at that time like talking to everyone, um, you know, children's hospitals, doctors, scientists. And the consensus opinion was like, go home and take care of your sick child. You're not going to be able to really like cure this disease in his lifetime. And um, just because of the quantity of, of children that had it, it wasn't meaningful enough to them? Or what was the... You know, it was a, it's a very severe disease. Um, it's a gene in the brain. The technology, you know, drug-wise wasn't really there yet. Um, 
to be able to impact this. It was just, it was, there were so many factors against it, let alone we also had no experience. Um, we weren't scientists, we, we weren't doctors, it was a lawyer, you know, drugs. creating a biotech company. And, you know, when you look at the probabilities of success for, you know, these central nervous system drugs, it's like sub 1%. Wow. So um, I can't even imagine what went through your head when you heard that. No, and so. Yeah, it was it was very tough. In some of the meetings when, you know, people that I had previously, you know, put on pedestals, you know, just by virtue of their position and their role and telling me, like, this is crazy, don't waste your time, um, it was crushing. It was actually right around the time that I started to get connected, you know, to Kabbalah. So we could talk about how that really um, played Absolutely. a pivotal part. But so we, um, we nevertheless just pushed forward because... Um, you know, there was no alternative. And so um, raised money. And um, how much was the raise on the, on the CDA? The first raise was about three and a half million. Wow. Was that family and friends or was that? It was, yeah, it was family and friends. Um, because there was no, I mean, there were no institutional investors that were going to give us right. a He's dollar. throw money into a, a lawyer drug. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Unheard of, like the, the case you guys were like dealing with. Yeah. Right? So people were probably... It was Let alone you later on, like, you know, the the probability of success in, in biotech. Um, right. But so, you know, we did it. We went out and, and we found um, a pharmaceutical partner um, to, to develop the drug with us. And, um, you know, and then it just started moving. And, um, you know, and ultimately we got it to a point where there was actually something there. We demonstrated you know, proof of concept with this drug and um, and then sold it to a, a larger public biotech company to basically take it from that point forward and, and develop it. And, um, you know, and now we all went over to work with them to really, I mean, among many other things, make sure that this drug, you know, continues to move forward. And, um, and it's, you know, there's been, I mean, an incredible number of challenges as there's with any drug, let alone... Sure you know, a therapy like this, um, in a condition like this. But, um, but we recently got cleared by the FDA to start treating patients. Um, it's huge. It was huge. And, uh, and so we, we dosed, um, we dosed five patients in this first trial and we just last week read out the preliminary results of the study and the drug is having, um, an incredible sort of efficacious response, which is unbelievable. Um, what, and so what were the hopes of the, of this trial? What, what results were, were hoping to be seen? Yeah, so so in typical drug development, um, the first study is done in healthy volunteers. Given you know the the disease, um, give, given the disease indication here, the severity of the disease and the type of treatment, which is an RNA therapy, it's an injection of a large molecule into the spine. Um, this was not going to be given in healthy volunteers. This is called a, a first in patient study. Sure. So. The, the goal of this first study was just safety. The, the idea was basically, can we just sort of validate that this drug is safe and that we're not really seeing these concerning adverse... Exactly. Um, so that was the goal. You know, so it's a low dose. Um, the hope, and, you know, we talk about hope's not a strategy, but I sure. can tell you the hope um, was maybe we'd see um, a, a signal of some sort at this low dose. Maybe, you know, we'd see... Because seizures are the sort of most you know, easily measurable endpoint here. Sure. Um, maybe 10, you know, 15% reduction in seizures at this very low dose. Um, across It's huge, 15%. It is, on top of standard care. What we actually saw was 45% median wow. seizure reduction um, at this at this dose on top of 
what is the best available treatment out there for all of these kids. You know, a large percentage of die. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't really know any kids over the age of 20 with this disease. Like, wow. it's, it's that serious. So, yeah. So, in, in going about this treatment, you mentioned being bought out by a larger pharmaceutical company. Given the rarity of it and the, the quantity of children who experience this, why would a company of that stature and size be inclined to buy you guys out? Yeah, so so basically we, we, we partnered with them on a deal that, you know, allowed us a profit share on the outcomes and some, some milestones. Um, you know, the, in this day and age, thanks to a number of things, um, there's, you know, there is incentive for developing drugs for ultra rare diseases. I think, you know, economically, I always knew that we had to make a commercially viable case for this. Sure. If we couldn't do it, we would never get anywhere. Um, and fortunately, as you know, the diagnostics have gotten better, more kids have been getting diagnosed. It's still ultra rare, um, but it's enough to make it commercially viable. And so, you know, there's a lot of also incentives for orphan, orphan drug development. Um, and so, you know, between that and ultimately, you know, wanting to successfully develop a drug, which is very rare for, you know, biotech companies to get a drug approved, I think, you know, those three things made it um, something that, you know, we were able to partner. And what's crazy is that at the time that, you know, we had demonstrated proof of concept, which essentially means that, you know, the drug um, conceptually works, um, there were a number of companies that actually wanted to partner this drug, which really? was incredible. And I'm assuming some bigger names. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so the, the process of going around proof of concept from the initial inception of the drug, how much time and trials did that that take um so that took about five years four years five, five years. years yeah with constant failures throughout the process i'm assuming constant failures there were there were a number of times when this thing um was as sure as dead and uh you know and you talk about like so there's of course there's the professional sure. you know challenges but then there's the personal and the emotional and you know there's a community of kids who desperately need this drug so, you know, there's a lot of that, let alone even individually speaking, when I start to apply my own, you know, sort of perceptions of failure, success, um, you know, all of these things that I think all of us experience, um, it's, uh, it's tough. And so, of course, your internal motivation was largely driven by your son. Yeah. But I think, I mean, clearly, case in point, four or five years of without any real success until now, what was your driving force? That this has to work, and if it doesn't work, I'm gonna I'm gonna try until it does, because I think you know anybody trying to be an entrepreneur is of course gonna go through failures, but I don't think most understand how many failures, right? You're like, sure, I'll struggle a bit here, and I'll have to fire a couple people, but to the extent that you had to go through 45 years without any results, how did you how did you wake up the next day and say I'm gonna go at this again until it works? You know, it's interesting because I think. Um... We've all heard this idea of like, you know, like you said, pushing through failures. It's not how many times you fail, it's how many times you get up, you know, all of these sort of cliches. I even remember, you know, in studying this concept of certainty, um, when I was a little bit younger, um, I had this complete misperception of what certainty was. I like I remember being in college and there was a girl who I was like, you know, really into. And I didn't know if, she, you know, sort of like she felt the same way. And I remember like, like you know, studying the 72 name, like, of certainty. And, like, I thought, like, that was good. Really? Yeah. And so you were already pretty Kabbalah when you were... You know, I don't even... Yeah. I, I wasn't, but, like, I guess there were, there were like, relics of it that stayed with me. And that's why I feel like there was there was something about this wisdom that just touched me when I was younger that just stuck. Because I remember that, but I don't remember being connected in other wow. ways. 
But I learned, of course, that that's not what certainty is. Um, you know, it's kind of trust that like whatever is happening ultimately is what is supposed to happen. It's for all our highest good. Right. Um, and, I, you know, I, I feel like th this is the case for so many people, including myself. You know, we get all these concepts, get all these cliches um, about failure and success and, you know, persevering and grit and th things like that. When you're actually tested, you know, it really shows, um, you know, is this a concept or do you actually really believe this to your core? Um, and that's where I am certain without some under, you know, some spiritual underpinning, um, it would have just collapsed on top of me. There's no question. So, you know, I think it's a combination of, um, you know, the desire has to be so strong, you know, whether it's an entrepreneur for me, for my son. Um, right. So that was there. The concepts and the tools have to be there without question. That was there. Um, you know, and then it's just the ability to actually stand, um, to stand there when the world's crashing down and be able to, you know, kind of apply it all. And, right. and, you know, the great point you mentioned, which was the last one in that when the whole world seemingly is against you, nobody has faith in whether it's your product in your instance, the drug that you were looking to develop, there must be a line where some things are meant to fail, right? Like you mentioned for greater good and other things are meant to be pushed through and break that wall and eventually you'll see success. So how can you differentiate as a young entrepreneur between I should push through no matter what and then like, no, it's a bad idea, buddy, like get on to the next one, right? So when when can you identify that? It's a great question. You know, I can say for me, there's there, there's two pieces to this. You know, this concept of um, is this just about me or is there something greater here um, was really important because, you know, for me, developing a drug for my son, it's very easy to, you know, to use him as motivation um, and to just sort of push through this because the alternative is just, you know, is just terrible. But at some point I did realize that that was actually a very selfish motive. Um, and it was when things were very challenging. And I, I, I did realize that if I didn't have this sort of broader perspective on how this could actually help not just him, but all these other kids and keep that as top of mind as helping him, um, once I started to do that, it actually made things a lot easier because you realize you're not just doing this for yourself. It's that sharing concept, right? Not taking, but sharing. That's where it comes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think that's key. You know, I think for an entrepreneur in developing, I do think, you know, at the end of the day, you need to, you know, really just sort of see that you can help um, all these people. It's not just about you and your own success and your own, you know, people's approval and these other things. I think there's certainly that element. So I think focusing on how you can change the world, if you really believe that, um, becomes, in a sense, a way of sharing as opposed to, you know, taking. You know, I think, um, I used to think also, like, at the end of the day, you know, I could, you know, maybe do something and maybe it'll impact, you know, some small circle, but, you know, realistically, like, no, I'm not going to be able to change the world per se. What I've seen is that I think everybody does get an opportunity to do it. And the question is, like, one that comes, um, how prepared are you? And I don't mean, you know, how intellectually prepared are you, but I do really actually strongly believe it's sort of how prepared are you from the standpoint of, you know, of kind of consciousness and mindset. Um, and no one knows when that's going to come. Like I said, I had no idea this was going to come this way. Sure. Never could have predicted this. So I, I think, you know, I, I also think that you draw those opportunities by the work we do on transforming ourselves. Cause I think what keeps those things from coming to us is all of these, you know, limited beliefs about ourselves, um, you know, our 
things like for me, it was a need for approval and, and this external validation, how much that ran my life. Um, so I don't know the opportunity would have ever come if not for working on that stuff and then being in a position to draw it and then to act on it. Ironic because at the time you were seeking approval, which was negative, it was your self-worth. And now you just got approval for something which is actually very positive. So I, I think that's the paradox of life, right? It's the things that can harm us if we can flip our perspective of that and, and use it for our good. It actually becomes the greatest thing and actually manifest success in our own lives. Totally. Um, and so I, I think to, to wrap up and to, to go on that note, I think ego is something that's extremely prevalent as you touched in anybody, but mainly in 20 to 30 year olds when you're starting to figure out your life, your pride, your sense of worth, your, it, it, everything rides on your ego. Um, and so I, I think what would be interesting to see is how can you use your ego as something that benefits you as opposed to, you know, caring too much what people think about you and something that actually rids your success as opposed to manifest it. Yeah. So you see the ego is actually a good thing. Like you could use it to be successful. Wow. It sounds like those are the tools that Alex, Alex ultimately used, right? I mean, if you didn't have ego, what is ego? But if you didn't have ego, I mean, why would you push for five years to see if this, I mean, there, there had to be, right? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that I I think that it drives you um, and I think that it sort of it it allows you to push through, you know, some of this stuff early on. And, you know, for whether it's an entrepreneur, you know, in my situation, you know, it it, it pushes you to a point, um, but it's it's certainly not enough. Uh, you know, it, it it gets it sort of, you know, gets the ball rolling. You know, it allows you to push past things, even if you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Um, and I, actually, I look back, you know, early on, even with my son and you know, part of me actually didn't want to face the reality of the situation at the time. So, you know, I think my gut or what maybe people say is a defense mechanism is like, sure. I'm going to fix it. Right. Um, only years later did I realize that, you know, they're studying some of the stuff that we study here, um, that, whoa, that was actually, uh, I was looking to avoid and that's what I was looking to do um, back then. Right. But it, it got me to the point where then when it's, you know, we really sort of stepped into like, you know, the the major league of how to do this um i could be in a position to transform that and actually grow because like i said this never would have been successful to the point it is now without all this other you know all this other wisdom that i've been able to learn i would have gotten to point you know from a to point b but certainly not to point you know cd and exactly And I think that's the difference. And I, you know, from what I see in people, there's plenty of successful people without spirituality, without consciousness. Right. And look at all over the world. Uh, totally. And, and uh, not good people either, right? People that are not doing good and yes. really nasty people, they still make a ton of money. So I don't think the two. 100%. Um, but, you know, if, if you're looking for, as cliche as it sounds, fulfillment, the ability to enjoy the things you have, all of that stuff, um, I've yet to see it really happen without, you know, spirituality, consciousness, which for me is Kabbalah. Beautiful. Can, can you recall one experience that you had, if it was in the past year, month, maybe five, ten years, that was like a whoa moment? That was like, it could be Kabbalah related, it could be spiritual related, it could be anything related. But you were talking a lot about experiencing and feeling. Um, anything comes to mind um, like that? That was like a whoa mm-hmm. moment, you know? Maybe reading, so I don't know, something came out. I don't know, whatever it could be. I mean, there's plenty, but there's two that just come to mind right now. One of them involves your dad. Um, um, your dad, Michael Burke, who's, you know, the head of the Kabbalah Center today. And it, so, you know, my son was suffering. His disease is is brutal. Um, it's an ultra rare disease. You know, it it essentially, um, you know, the, the disease manifests as seizures. And uh, there's just a ton of, of terrible symptoms. And um, 
and I was beside myself. I, you know, I sort of turned to all of the tools that I had, and nothing was breaking. And the drug that we were developing was really stuck. Um, and I was in New York, and I went to see to see Michael, and you know, I like came into his house, and I was like sort of like pouring everything out. Sure. Um, it was very emotional. I was telling him, you know, all this going on. And I wanted his advice. Like, what should I do now? Um, and he said, I just want. I just want you to have some peace of mind around what's going on. And I left and I was like, what was he even talking about? Like, like, I, I, I'm like, I want some specific I, advice. I was, what do yeah, I, do? I spoke to a friend of mine yeah. um, and I was like, I, I don't even, I, I don't even know what that means. I wanted more guidance and advice. Like, I, I'm not sure. Over a little bit of time, I've come to realize exactly what it meant. And it was very profound for me. And it definitely changed things. Um, you know, what I learned that, at least what I believe he was saying, was that, you know, not having peace of mind with the current situation um, in many ways was was a form of doubt in this entire system, in the light and everything else. Um, and I see this so much with, you know, any time that something comes up that I don't like, that, you know, that just doesn't work for me, that I want to change, um, uh, there's so much resistance. You know, I think when I started this stuff to to help my son and, and all these other kids. I wanted to just fix. It was like fix, right. fix, fix. Um, but this focus on changing the outcome, um, you know, takes you out of the present moment and really, you know, undermines this concept of certainty and trust and surrender. And what I saw was that it was actually stopping, you know, the momentum of this program. It was stopping the change from happening. It was stopping the drug from getting developed. When I so you're non peace of mind. Yeah, your your willingness to help and try and was actually not necessarily doing the effect that you wanted to uh, see from it, right? It was yes, it was acting that in a sense. Exactly, it, it was that I needed to do all of those things, but with this complete acceptance um, and trust and certainty, as we like to say, um, in exactly what was in front of me today. Peace in mind. Yes, and the second I did that, everything started moving. Um, wow! So that was that was like really impactful. Um, and you said previously that your life is a lot happier, you have more joy through Kabbalah, but the challenges are still there. I mean, that sounds completely logical, right? Don't, doesn't happiness come from the removal of challenges? <laughs> how is life better when the things, when things are the same? That's the definition of insanity, right? So how could you, how do you express that? How does that, how does that make any sense in, from your experience? Yeah, you know, watching, you know, going through this and especially like from the vantage point of seeing a lot of other, in my case, you know, these, these other families who are dealing with very challenging things, you realize that no one has a life free of challenges. Um, no one has a life free of stress. It's just, I mean, it's a complete illusion to think that that's the end goal. Um, so the happiness comes from, you know, your ability to experience those in a different way. That one of One of my favorite quotes, which... I learned from, you know, one of the early Kabbalah teachers that I had here was the universe doesn't give you what you want. It gives you who you are mm -hmm. in that moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I loved yeah. about it um, is that really, you know, we have it's like a cause and effect issue. You know, like if we want to change something, um, the only place we can go to change that first is internally within ourselves and to transform. And, you know. That I think is the essence of of so much so many of these teachings, because like you said, I mean the challenges will always be there. Um, so when you want to make changes to your experience of them, it's only internal. Sure.
and you so you test your happiness to it sounds more of a state of mind than a physical reality i think an issue or a desire in many 20 and 30 year olds in today's day and age is that physical manifestation of things be it cars money you know relationships is what's going to lead to your happiness in your instance it doesn't sound like any of that was the was what led to your happiness um before kabbalah did you were those things things that you pursued and ultimately led to a dead end or did they satisfy you to an extent what was your experience like prior to kabbalah with happiness and your pursuit of it um totally sought out those things totally you know validated my own self and my own happiness and my own success through those things and you know at that age like i I mean, I, I don't think that's unreasonable or that's just unexpected. I think that that's just the reality of kind of the way, you know, even society is set up and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that the difference and in retrospect where this wisdom would have been so powerful for me sure. is to experience all of those things in a very different way. It's similar to how we look at challenges. You know, all these material things um, can also be great. It's just the way in which we, you know, derive value from them about ourselves that and, you know, and jealousy of others and like that's where they become very dangerous and i feel like that's the difference but yes i was totally in that world um it didn't lead me to any happiness it didn't lead me to fulfillment um but uh you know but i suppose that's just what people value right so do you think so given you've studied kabbalah now how would right you can have a Ferrari at 21 years old and feel completely gutted and empty, maybe worse than you did before you made the money and bought the Ferrari. Ferrari? Really? That won't make you happy? <laughs> it's I crazy. Mean, it's true, it's, though, right? You know, It's crazy, but it's true. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that's something that I think we should really touch on because I think that if you told somebody that's in their 19 or 20 or 25 years old that those things will make them happy, then the immediate thought would probably be that nothing will make me happy because that's what the world is telling me I need to be happy. and I'm not happy now. Yes. Then what can I pursue? So I guess the question would be for you is with without those things existing, what 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 can you derive happiness from? Or how do you derive happiness from those things? With a, is it a consciousness? Is that what you're expressing? Is it a, is it merely a, a viewpoint that you have on those things that changes your experience of it? Um I think that's right. I mean, you know, for me, you know, I've only been able to really enjoy things, material things after transforming myself and, you know, my limited beliefs around the value of those things. Because, you know, for me, my entire life, um, you know, it's been about seeking approval, external validation. So it was very easy to sort of find value in those things and think I was successful because I had those things. Um, then I went through this period of, you know, like I think many of us do, you know, after our 20s and 30s when we're like, oh, these things are you know, these things are not going to bring me happiness. Mm. What's interesting is on the back end of that, when you sort of work through and transform yourself, you actually can enjoy those things, but you're not putting so much value in them. Um, and I think that's the difference now because, you know, myself and many other people, you know, enjoy material things in a different way. Should, than right? I mean, I yes. I think that's a misperception about Kabbalah too. I think that, you know, about spirituality in general, I think, right. you know, there's the Buddhist perception of, yeah. Let's, restrict, let's restrict let's yes. restrict or refrain from all the pleasures of life and right which is completely irrational life's meant to be experienced through pleasure but i think what you're saying is that the restriction of the care and what others think and of the self-worth being dependent on those monetary things is what prevents the happiness from coming in completely right totally and i think you know 
for many of us when we're 20 or 30, like you just think that that will bring you happiness. These right. things you will the nice bring car, you happiness. You have the nice girl. You have, yes. I mean, what more can you ask? Totally. For right. And for a period of time, I think it does. Um, I just think it's fleeting like any instant gratification is. It's just fleeting. So then the question is, after that, what's left? What comes next? Yeah. Right. And so on, to, to continue on that thought, I think that, um, you know, many, I don't even want to say 20s, I'm 25 years old, but I think that everybody cares what people think about them. And that tends to be the biggest hindrance of happiness, fulfillment, and, yeah. and really overall experience of life is diminished when that's where you're staying, right? You wake up in the morning and most of our decisions are unfortunately influenced by what others will think of us. So it sounds like you're at a place where maybe you still care, but it's not overarching all your desires. You're still doing what's inherent to you. I don't think you would have jumped from law into a field that you had no experience in if you cared a lot what people thought about you. So clearly you're, you're gifted in that sense. But is that something that over time, as you get older, you, naturally you care less and less what others think? Or is that something that you have to actively and proactively do in order to get to a state where it's not as important to you? I think from the people I know who do not study spirituality, you know, study some form of consciousness, even therapy, I think that that plagues you your entire life. I think for the rest of us that do, it's still there. I think that, you know, what, what, one of the, the real benefits of being connected to some, you know, universal spiritual wisdom or consciousness is that you see it, you catch it quickly, and you're able to actually work on transforming it. And the most fulfillment that I've gotten, as crazy as it would have sounded to me when I was 20 or 30, is through transforming those things because it gives you complete freedom to actually just be, um, you know, exactly who you are, do exactly what you want. And I mean, that that is so incredibly powerful. It allows people to do things that they otherwise, you know, shouldn't be able to do. You know, maybe one example for me is being able to you know, start a successful biotech company and develop a drug, you know, for a ultra rare disease. Like that's just, I mean, that was my experience. Yeah. I mean, how many people are doing that? Right. And Alex, I would love to know, like, um, you're talking a lot about right now, just the whole idea of doing what you feel and doing what's right for you. Um, is there maybe one practical thing that you do day by day that helps you to do that? Or maybe, do you know anything, maybe all the youth that's watching the teenagers, the young adults, what could today the youth do practically day by day to stop caring what others think and focus more on what they think, what they care about? Is there anything that comes to mind? Could it it's a very hard question. Um, if I if I truly knew like how to exist without caring what people think, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I guess what I would say is, you know, one of the like earliest concepts that you know we learn in this wisdom, um, you know, is are you kind of in layman's terms, are you a taker or are you a giver? Mm. Um, and, you know, I can tell you that I'm constantly asking myself that question because I think, you know, what I've learned and what I believe now, you know, with certainty to be true is that, you know, you only can drive happiness when you're a giver. Um, whenever I'm going to go into, you know, a meeting or, you know, whether it's work or whether it's personal, an example happened recently where, you know, I had an important work meeting and I was preparing for it. And a friend called me with something that I really did not want to deal with because I needed to prepare. And in that moment, I knew um, I had an opportunity right there to be a giver or to be you know, a taker and just basically just say, I need to prepare for this meeting. No. Um, and, I, you know, and I decided to take the call and to give and to share. And I 
realized from studying something like this, and I would have never in a million years appreciated this concept, that putting myself in sort of that channel of being a giver will actually prepare me a million times more for the meeting. That's just one concept that I use all the time now. Um, every, you know, where are there opportunities to give? Uh, another example is a friend's 35th birthday party that I had to go to with, you know, just coming down from New York, a number of his friends from New York came down, it's a kid I went to college with. We'll leave yeah. his name out because he might be listening to this, so we'll right. call him out. But. So I had to go to his party and I did not want to go. I actually didn't like any of these kids that were coming down for it and I really didn't want to go. And I was driving there and I just felt like I don't want to be here. So I called my teacher, David Gim, and I said, I don't want to go to this thing, like at all. He's like, you're in the perfect consciousness to go into this because you're not looking to receive anything. Even though you had zero desire to go, he was telling you. Zero. Right. He said this is the optimal consciousness to be in. So, why? Yeah, why is okay. You're not looking to take. What's wrong with taking? Um, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking. I, I guess what I've learned here is that if you are solely focused on taking, um, you know, you'll generally get these sort of instant moments of happiness, um, but it's not, it doesn't last. And again, these are concepts that, you know, maybe when I was younger, I would have doubted over time. Now, looking back, it's the only reason for, you know, my personal happiness and success. Um, so, of course, I went into this party. Um, and I mean, the the conversations and actually business opportunities that came out of it would have never come out of it in a million years had I not been in that like that consciousness, that state of mind. For somebody who's never tried that or doesn't hasn't experienced that, how would you even suggest that they go about something that sounds so irrational and, and illogical? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a little bit of sort of a mindset, a consciousness of giving. How can I give? You know, sometimes I, I, I think sometimes giving is obvious, like giving actual things. Sometimes sure. it's giving time. Um, you know, the way I was taught this concept um, here was that it's really just operating counter to your comfort zone. So if your comfort zone is to, you know, not want to do something, it's kind of to push through and do it, especially when it's, you know, to benefit somebody else. Um, so, you know, I, I've tried to apply that as much as I can. And the, you know, the best things that I, you know, that I have in my life outside of my family are all from experiences where I'm pushing through what's otherwise comfortable for me. So effectively, you know, giving. Interesting. That's something that's so foreign, in, especially in today's day and age. There's wellness apps, there's apps, calm apps, there's breath work, and all of those things ultimately lead you to a place of comfort. That's the ultimate desire. If there's not a spiritual component to it, it's how can I live the most comfortable and satisfying life? So how does one pursue discomfort, which ultimately leads, is you're saying that's what leads to comfort and the pursuit of comfort will actually make you very uncomfortable? Yeah, I think like if we talk about kind of... Um... I don't know whether it's the sort of biomedical scientific space, like maybe the cold plunge is a good example. Okay. You know. Do you cold plunge, by the way? Um, I have a couple of times, but, you know, it's like the first few minutes are terrible and you feel awful. It doesn't feel right. Why would anybody... Five seconds, right? Getting in. Who would ever choose to do this? like self-pain, right? Yes. You know, once you get through on the back end and then the health benefits are incredible. You know, I think it's like working out, like which, you know, you would know better than me. It's like this idea of breaking down muscle. It's counterintuitive. You're going to break it down to build it back up uh, more strongly. So I think there's a big element of of that. You know, I think this isn't like, this is not in any sort of stretch a path to be unhappy and to be miserable and therefore you're going to get you know all these sort of successes at some later point it's not that it is it is 
in the moment happiness, it's sort of just a shift in, in consciousness and mindset to um, a little bit more of a sharing giving um, to receive happiness versus I'm going to take and that's going to fulfill me. Sure. So I think that also could tie back into with the fear of religion, which most religions say live a life of restrictions, depression, do these things that you don't want to do for your entire life. And hopefully when you go up there, there's something waiting for you, right? In every religion, that's the same ideology. So I think what you're saying is crucial because a spiritual path for you, which is Kabbalah, is one where you experience instant prolonged gratification, although that seems contradictory to what religion and even ultimately spirituality teaches you, right? You can be happy today. You can be happy throughout your life. And then also, if you do believe in an afterlife, there's an experience there too, but you're, it's not predicated on your actions in this lifetime, right? Totally. The, the, one of the most eye-opening things for me in studying, you know, this wisdom versus some of the others that I had just, you know, barely touched is that, you know, this is a path to day in, day out happiness, um, you know, with everything else that's going on. And I, I saw like, even, you know, getting exposed to this earlier on in my life when my priorities were very different, um, you know, and they were more into material things and socializing, things like that. Sure. The foundation of this and the mindset and the consciousness that it provided me just created so much more happiness. Um, so it's not suggesting we take away all of these things. Right. It's like, you know, keep your life exactly as it is, but shift your consciousness um, and, you know, you'll be able to achieve a whole another level of happiness and fulfillment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think so on a different topic, and again, our, our, although we'll have many different listeners, a, a large proportion will be of younger adults and individuals looking to figure out their life's path. And unfortunately, I'm sure as you've seen in your profession, majority now are experiencing anxiety, depression, mental health issues, lack of attention, lack of focus, lack of purpose. Um, and so I guess first, why do you think as time goes on and we're more technologically advanced and there's more innovations in the world, it's actually doing the inverse effect of what the, right? We have an iPhone, which is meant to connect us with others. All these social media platforms are meant to connect us with others, but it's, it seems to be doing the opposite. People are more alone. People feel more lonely, depressed, as I mentioned. So why do you think that is? And then do you believe that technology is not the answer? I mean, clearly what you've done is using technology. And I mean, it's two different questions, but how do you think the two intertwine? And is there a path to where technology works to our favor and not against us? I mean, I'm a, a huge fan of technology. I think, you know, all, I mean, any innovation is is just incredible. And I think that, you know, one of the most amazing things for me about consciousness, again, it sort of speaks to this idea of, um, it's just the way in which you engage with things. And I think that the lack of consciousness, you know, the lack of spirituality, the lack of, of that when you magnify it, um, you know, when you sort of put that on top of um, the the magnified way in which people are engaging today, it's just going to, you know, expose more of the challenges if you're not doing it from a place of conscious. Because I know plenty of people who are coming at this very differently who are not feeling a lot of those things. And it's complicated because I think everyone's situation is different. But I do think um, the sort of universal nature of what, you know, Kabbalah brings um, really just brings light to any situation. So I don't see why it would be any different here. Alex, well, thank you so much for your time. We do have a couple of questions from the audience. And so we'll take them and we'll wrap up with that. Our first question is uh, from a very close friend and student from uh, Florida. And he asks, um, why Kabbalah? You know, we've heard from everything you've shared today that Kabbalah gave you a very big view and experience that is more fulfilling in life. Why Kabbalah? 
Why is that the answer? So, you know, I can only speak for me, and I'll say that, um, you know, any form of consciousness, spirituality, in, in my opinion, is essential. I can't imagine my life without it, and certainly none of my success would have happened without it. For me, Kabbalah, as distinct from other forms of spirituality and consciousness that I have, you know, explored over the years, is that it fits in perfectly to my life as it is. Um, you know, certainly when I first got introduced, I wasn't ready to give up a lot of the things that gave me pleasure at the time, the lifestyle, the desires. Um, and what Kabbalah offered was not, you know, in any way inconsistent with any of that. It just enhanced it. Um, and that's continued to be true to this day. You know, everything in my life um, doesn't necessarily from the outside look all that different. It's just my enjoyment and experience of it is on a whole other level. So our second question is from a very close student. Uh, he's 15 from Israel. The question is, how can today, this week or this month, what's one thing we can do to live a more fulfilling life? It's a really good question. You know, there's plenty, but I guess I would say this all comes back to one thing for me and what I've seen in my entire life, um, and it's been the exact same idea. Um, the second you start to look externally to change things in your life, um, they'll never change. They may change for a moment, but they'll never actually change. And so for me, whenever something isn't going right externally in my life, whether it's in business, you know, career, stroke development, at home, the, the, I always pause and ask myself, what am I doing internally? What's going on for me internally? Um, and how can I work on changing that and transforming that? Because for so many years, I was constantly looking to change my circumstances, my path, you know, anything outside of myself. Um, and now it's just so clear to me that that never brought me any real true and lasting change. Um, and so it's it's really just as simple as that. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure with Alex. If you want to see more of him, I know he's going to be on a podcast in the coming weeks. You can check him out on uh, Rarecast. It's a it's a podcast from uh, the biopharma industry on rare disease and kind of inspiring stories about developing drugs for rare disease. Beautiful. Check it out. Beautiful. And next week, our guest will be a serial entrepreneur from London. Some of you may know him. I'm going to leave his name out. But come join us, and we look forward to chatting. Thanks, guys. See you next time.